You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So every yoga practitioner must ask the question, what is yoga? You know, what is yoga? What is yoga? What is yoga? If you read the definition, yoga is unity. Oh, unity. Oh, wonderful. What shall I have unity with? Shall I be unified with myself? And if so, is that a narcissistic path? If I am just unified with myself? Oh, you know, sometimes people who do so much spiritual seeking can end up appearing to be self-centered. Oh, I'm interested in my energy. I want to feel my hip joint. I want to raise my vibration. I want to eat good food for my body. And we begin to be very interested in this um, self aspect of self-realization. So is that useful? You know, is that yoga? I shall be unified with self. Is that enough? You know, it's a question. Or is yoga something else? Is yoga a quest for ultimate unity, for one unity? And then unity with what? So when we think about the notion of yoga as union, before we think about that larger philosophical concept of what is unity, I want to go back into the notion of yoga from its historical context within the traditional teaching of Patanjali. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Patanjali, Patanjali is the author of the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras are probably the canonical texts of the yoga tradition, which codified the teaching of yoga and really helped kind of crystallize the philosophical foundation for which we still practice more than 2,000 years later today. According to Patanjali, unity is a dangerous concept. Hmm. So when we look up the definition of yoga as unity, and then we think about this in the context of Patanjali, I understand. Well, Patanjali says certain types of unity are dangerous. Oh, no. So now we really have to dive in deeper. So which is the unity which is dangerous and which is the unity which will bring me peace? Because why are we really here? Even if you don't know anything about the yoga philosophy, you take one yoga class, hopefully you have a good teacher, good class, and you feel better. So then we want to go, oh, I don't know what this yoga is, where it comes from, but I like this. I feel good. I want to do it again. Then we don't know yoga means Patanjali, any, you know, unity. We don't know anything Sanskrit. We just know I bend forward. I bend back. I take some breaths. I feel better after. Great. Wonderful. Then we hear the definition. Yoga is unity. Ah, unity with what? Now we have to involve the higher mind. And we must involve not only this feel good in the body, but we must consciously become aware of the inner processes of the spiritual past and the spiritual seeking. I believe that every student who walks into a yoga class, every single student, whether you take a class in a gym, whether you take a class in a yoga ashram, whether, you know, or, or, or some spiritual center, or whether you do a class, uh, uh, you know, online, like we're doing now, or whether you do, you know, you learn from yoga and books. I believe that every single person who interacts with the discipline of yoga is in some ways a spiritual seeker. Even if they're not consciously seeking, there are those who are consciously seeking who say, I want 
to find out the answers of what is this life about? I want to find out what is consciousness? Who am I? And where do I come from? And where am I going? What is this life about? I want that answer. I want to know if yoga is unity, what am I unifying with? People are conscious seekers. Other people are unconscious seekers, but it does not mean that they are not seekers. They don't really know. They're not really thinking, oh, I want to find out what is ultimate truth. No, they just think this looks cool. I want to stand on my head. Great. You came to yoga class. Something in your being is seeking. Otherwise you wouldn't be there. At some moment, that spark, which is seeking within you will awaken. And at that moment, you too will be a conscious seeker. So what is the difference? And I will get back to what Patanjali says about yoga in just one moment. But what is the difference between a conscious and an unconscious seeker? Both are seeking. The conscious seeker can accelerate the path of awakening a little bit by being aware and by placing a very high emphasis on the spiritual path and the processes of spiritual awakening and learning. The unconscious seeker may uh, slow things down by not being very aware and just by ping-ponging sort of haphazardly between one learning experience and another learning experience and may need multiple uh, sort of attempts at learning the same lesson before they become aware of that lesson. Now, the pitfalls of being too conscious about your seeking is that the ego can get involved in your spiritual journey. And when the ego gets involved in your spiritual journey, it can be an impediment in and of itself. For example, there are a lot of people who begin their spiritual quest with the same grasping mind that we apply to rising up the corporate ladder in large companies. For example, I want a promotion. I want a promotion. I want a promotion. And then we bring that into our spiritual quest. I want to be liberated. I want to be liberated. Well, I want the next level of samadhi, next level of samadhi. I want to graduate. I want to get a pay raise in my spiritual vibration. They're so interested. I want to raise my vibration, vibration, vibration. So the ego gets involved. And then that consciousness can be an impediment to the spiritual journey of awakening. Then we're not unified with anything. Then we're just grasping, grasping, grasping. Oh, now I collect realization and spiritual experiences, just like we would collect bonuses and raises from our bosses and, you know, and our companies that we work for. Now, the positive aspect of being an unconscious spiritual seeker is that the ego is not involved in your spiritual journey. So things happen by happenstance and you're often just, wow, it feels magical. It hits you on the left, you know, on the, uh, it hits you out of the, on the left side when you're not really paying attention. It seems to come out of the blue suddenly. I woke up to this new truth. I don't know where it came from. You were working on it unconsciously for many years. Suddenly you realize something. So it's a wonderful thing. It can take a long time, but when it happens, there's, no, there's, there's very little ego involved in that. So there's benefits and disadvantages to being conscious and unconscious about our spiritual journey. And sometimes we'll vacillate between one or the other. Oh, consciously I'm aware I'm working towards this goal and I'm trying to consciously, and you can, you can use consciousness to, to, to work against the ego as well. Consciously I'm working towards this goal and I'm conscious that my ego is attached to the result. So I'm consciously surrendering my ego. I'm consciously letting go of manipulation, control, surrender. Difficult. It's a harder path, right? Unconsciously you can let go and say, I don't know the path that I will attain this. I have no idea how I'm working on this. So anyhow, I'm just going to trust that whatever I'm doing, whatever that is, will anyhow lead me wherever I want to go and wherever I should go. So we really just embrace the ignorance. Either way, if something in you is on the path of yoga and you're here now and you're practicing, you have to recognize there is something within me which is seeking and that which you seek sooner or later, you will find. We all want sooner, but sometimes later is more appropriate. Okay. So... 
Let's go back to the concept of unity. Unity, unity. Yoga is unity. Oh, wonderful. What shall I unify with? Now let's take a look contextually at what Patanjali says about unity. So traditionally in the philosophy of Patanjali, which you can agree or disagree with, I'm not presenting this as the philosophy of Kino McGregor. I'm presenting this as the philosophy of Patanjali. I have my own thoughts about the world here or there. But for right now, we look at what Patanjali says. Patanjali, this author of the Yoga Sutras, who codified very much yoga philosophy and really kind of carved out the discipline of yoga as a philosophical uh, school within the orthodox schools of Indian uh, thought of spiritual realization. So uh, Patanjali uh, uh, presents this philosophy, uh, uh, this philosophy of, or I would rather say this epistemology, which is a knowledge framework of how things are, are uh, presented and known in the world as a dichotomy between two things. The phenomenal world, which is called in Sanskrit, Prakriti. The phenomenal world is the world with which we are engaging now, which is the world of phenomena, not phenomenal as in like, that's phenomenal, dude. Phenomena as in that which arises and passes, right? So these things which are born, which shall also unfortunately one day pass away. The world of things and materiality. This is the phenomenal world, the world of phenomena. Within the world of phenomena, there are, there are features known as multiplicity, which means there's a lot of stuff in the phenomenal worlds, right? There's a um, thing about hair, for example. There's a lot of hair in the phenomenal world. If we collected all of the hair that grows on human beings and even just human beings throughout the world, we would have a lot of hair. We'd have a lot to deal with. If everybody shaved their heads and sent it all into one postal place in the whole world. That would be an inundation of hair. And that's just an example of how much stuff there is in the material world. Nobody could count all that hair. It would take a very, very long time and be quite gross, in my opinion. So if we think about uh, the phenomenal world, there's multiplicity. There's lots of it. It's temporary. Nothing is permanent in the world of Prakriti, constantly changing. So change itself in the phenomenal world is the only constant. Mm -hmm. Now there's another, it's a dichotomy. So in the dichotomy, there's Prakriti. And then there is, if we take the opposite of the phenomenal, we have to understand what is noumenal, what is unmanifest, what is singular. So what is the singularity that sits in contrast to the multiplicity of the phenomenal world that is presented in Sanskrit as Purusha. Purusha is off, can be translated, I think the closest English word that is the approximation of that is the unmanifest or, 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 or pure spirit we could think about. Uh, is, a, is another way to approximate uh, Purusha, so the spirit, the noumenal, the eternal, the singular, the oneness, which stands in contrast to the uh, finite notions of the individual, the notion of the infinite, as in contrast to the temporal, the eternal, as in contrast to the ephemeral, which means arising, passing, fleeting, uh, the changeless, the birthless, and therefore also the deathless, that which has never been born and that which will never die. The unmanifest, some people hear Purusha and think, oh, you're talking of God. If that is what God is to you, wonderful. Then that's wonderful. So great. Okay. So we have this dichotomy. Now we have yoga. Oh, yoga. Oh. So now, now we can see, oh, shall I unify with Prakriti or shall I unify with Purusha? what am I? Am I Prakriti or am I Purusha? And this is the fundamental question that yoga seeks to answer for all seekers. Who are you? You are not Prakriti, Patanjali says. The problem, the root of all our suffering is that we, the individual soul, which has 
a connection to the divine soul, meaning the individual purusha, the idea that every aspect of nature, prakriti, has as its real true self, purusha, that purusha, which is within you, has agreed at some moment, we don't know when, has agreed at some moment to forget its true nature. You've forgotten who you really are. And this purusha has generated in some manner the seed of what's called ignorance, avidya. And avidya is what's called in Patanjali's terminology, the mula klesha. And the word mula means root, klesha, obstacle, or we can think about it as the root knot. This knot begins the chain of conditioned existence because mula klesha is purusha saying, I am prakriti, is the eternal within you saying, oh, I am my body. Oh, I am my thoughts. Oh, I am my emotions. Oh, I am defined by my interactions. What this person thinks about me defines who I am. What I present myself as physically defines who I am. And so when Purusha gets lost in a false unification with Prakriti, Mula Klesha begins and the root of all suffering unfolds. So yoga is not, is not about unifying in an ignorant manner. Yoga is meant first to break the delusion of false perception. So first you must realize, I am not my body. I am not my thoughts. I am not my accomplishments. I am not my emotions. I am not anything here in this material world. So we must break that false unification first. And then only we can begin to understand what we should unify with. Oh, Purusha must rest in its own true nature. And this is when we understand that it's very important what level your mind is operating on when you start to think about, oh, I will unify. Oh, all is one. You know, if we're operating on the realm of prakriti, there is difference. And that difference cannot be obliterated or ignored. If we're working on the level of purusha at that level, that opportunity to experience oneness and unify with that experience of oneness is available. However, the false truths persist. And unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion, both uh, in the time of Patanjali and in our current day, where we're unable to identify permanent truth as permanent. And we instead get deluded. We follow false prophets. We go down the road of one of the great and, and, and dangerous obstacles along the spiritual path, which is called Branti Darshana, which means the false truth. We essentially fall for it. And, and unfortunately, it's really easy to fall for false truths because they feel good and they're easy and they feed all of our old patterns. You know, when someone tells us, hey, you know, you don't have to work hard at all. You can just, you know, have your cake and eat it too. You can just do whatever you want and it'll be totally fine. And, you know, we like that. We're like, really? I can just do whatever I want and it'll all be okay. Well, great. So then I, and then if you take that to asana practice, we're like, oh, wonderful. I never need to jump back again. No more jump backs for me. I hate those things anyway. Hmm. What else do I not like that I can start removing since everything is wonderful and I'm just perfect as I am. Then we just start deleting things left and right. And then we're left, you know, doing nothing except lying in the bed under the covers all day because mm, that's cozy. So then we understand, oh, 
hmm, maybe after some years of lying under the covers, we hatch another idea. Maybe this was not useful. Maybe I have followed the path of Branti Darshana a little bit. And there's, there, there's more obstacles involved in, in that, but it's believing, believing something that's easy to believe. And what are the things that are easiest to believe that which we have the most patterning towards? What do we have the most patterning towards? Usually those things which are most destructive, unless we have been a conscious creator of a new way of living, breathing, and being. And so this is what the definition of, of yoga is, we can say. So if we look in, you know, if we just take one last look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, and then I'll turn over to uh, begin to chat about some of your questions in the chat. So if we just, again, take a look at the beginning of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, if we have the idea, uh, the... Uh, sutra number two, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, that yoga is a, a state of nirodaha, which is a state of deep stillness that occurs when the faculty of the mind turns inward. When this state of nirodaha happens in the field of chitta, which is the field not only of mind, but mind, emotion, and matter, everything we are, right? Everything we are in this manifest world, that which we have manifested. When that which we have manifested is in the state of nirodaha, then we are in the state of yoga. And in that place, prakruti, in other words, is calm. So we can see through the reality the false reality into the truer, deeper, more permanent reality. So, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha tada drashtu swarupe avastanam. So now we have the drashtu. Drashtu is another Sanskrit word that is uh, akin to purusha. Drashtu is the seer, the seer, the seeing consciousness, that field of awareness which is pure isness. Finally, the drashtu can reside avastanam in its true nature. In other words, if you translate that into kind of contemporary English, you can think about that as now you can finally see who you really are. You know, once the storm of thoughts has come to a still point, once the waters of the mind still, you can finally see down to the depth level of who you really are. Mm -hmm. Those two sutras really give you the definition of what is yoga. So yoga is far more than just casual unity, you know, to speak lip service to all, you know, yoga is oneness without ever having actually touched the experience of Purusha is just to give lip service to something we don't know anything about. You know, what rings true can only ring true from your direct experience. We can read something in a book and it makes sense logically. But if you want to speak and live from a truth, you must have lived that truth for yourself. And this is the difference between, you know, the idea of, of intellectual knowledge versus experiential knowledge. The whole premise of the practice of yoga is predicated on the notion that you need a personal practice as a forum for you to experience some of these deeper, esoteric, more mystical truths. Otherwise, we could just spend the rest of our lifetimes arguing one truth or another, one truth or another. What is Prakriti? What is Purusha? What is the ultimate truth? Who is God? Who am I? Where am I going? All these questions. We can, we can argue philosophically here or there, philosophize here or there, theorize here or there. But that philosophy which says, the truth that you experience to be true, that you have lived and known and tasted and felt within your body, felt within your mind, have been, have been planted into the energy system that you are, then that truth will define your life. So we need to understand that this is what we're after here. We're after a kind of, I would even say a life altering recognition of an eternal transcendent truth. And we're either seeking that consciously or unconsciously which is not necessarily good or bad. Remember, there are benefits and disadvantages to each of those paths, and we will vacillate between one or the other. 
but to constantly remember what is yoga, what is yoga, what is yoga, especially in our contemporary age. It's so important because if we don't ask ourselves that question, what is yoga? We can start to think that yoga is some competition, you know, for the best looking asana. Oh, what is yoga? Oh, it's the person who has the legs behind the head. What is yoga? Oh, yoga is a, is a handstand. No, yoga is not handstand. But you can use handstand to practice yoga. Yoga is not putting the legs behind the head, but you can use putting the legs behind the head to practice yoga. Mm-hmm. One last thing that I should say is it's important to have some, um, like some basis for you to experience. And that's what asana is. It's a forum for you to experience. And without asana, then we have also this idea of anything goes for yoga, you know? So we have asana as a, as a very conscious basis to understand, oh, I have asana. This is a framework for me to experience what this yoga is and apply the methodology of yoga so that we are working with the mind stuff. We are working with the manifested stuff, which is you know, the body and our, what's our energy, what's around us. And, and we're, we're seeking for these deeper truths, right? And it's important. Without that framework, then again, anything could be yoga. Without the framework of asana, well then, well then you know, anything. Well, then I'm doing cooking yoga. Why? Because I'm making dinner, you know, not that you're making dinner, just you can make dinner. It's fine. And you can take a meditative aspect to the way we make dinner. But the, but the practice of yoga is, is, is something very, very sacred. And we, we have to be clear. Otherwise we end up with more ignorance, more avidya, more ignorance. Oh, everything is yoga. Then I don't need to practice anymore because I'm immersed in an eternal field of yoga. Okay. That is possible. Yes, that is possible. When you become the Buddha, when you cross over onto that level of spiritual realization where you can say, I follow in the path of the Buddha and I am now an enlightened one. I am also like the Buddha said, Tathagata. When I am that, on that level, yes, everything for you is yoga. You're living in the state of Purusha. You are, you know, wonderful. Now, if you're not there and then you say, well, everything I do is yoga, then we're back in delusion, back in delusion. Oh, and we think, oh, I'm enlightened and you're not enlightened. You have convinced yourself, you yourself are your own false guru. You have convinced yourself, oh, I'm enlightened, you know, to walk around saying I'm enlightened. I think that's the first indication. You are not enlightened. You walk around and tell the whole world, oh, I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. You're beating people over the head with your enlightenment. Look how enlightened I am. You know, I can see all your problems. That's how enlightened I am. I have no problems myself, but I can see all your problems. That's how enlightened I am. Oh, the first indication that there's no enlightenment. You know, so I would say, you know, this is uh, something to think about with ourselves to not claim that we're beyond uh, the level of where we are. And instead, just to try to make peace with, you know, I'm on the path. I'm on the path. I'm a seeker. I'm on the path. And we can only ever learn at the pace that's appropriate for us. And we're and 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 when we try to understand that there's no competition spiritually, just like there's no competition physically on this spiritual journey of yoga, you know, So don't make the false equivalence of physical poses and spiritual journey. It's just a lesson. And also don't make a competition between, oh, this person, they're learning this lesson and I'm learning this lesson. My lesson is terrible. Their lesson is beautiful. It's not like that. There's no competition. We're on, we're all, we're all on our our different trajectories, learning what we need to learn at the pace that we need to learn. Okay. I've seen many questions pop into the chat. So let's see. Okay. We'll start at the bottom and I'll move up. Annalise, hi Annalise, has asked the question, how can we understand what pure truth is without spiraling into a state of deep confusion, which causes for me lots of pain? Well, you're here practicing yoga. So yoga itself 
over long years of practice will lead you to at least an experience here or there of the purity of, of truth, uh, that eternal truth, which is changeless, that eternal truth, which is not bound by dualities. So one thing that you can see is that when we are on the seeker's path, none of us have the complete view. We are all, in some ways, blind people holding on to one piece of an elephant, talking about our own perspective. So in our understanding, when we have a moment, a flash of insight that allows us to see the whole picture, that's a gift, a transcendent gift, which comes with practice, with grace, you know, and we stay on the path. Now, if you misidentify what is true from what is untrue, there are consequences that will be evident in your life. So that which is true has no, mm, uh, that, that which is ultimately true is, is, it will lead you into, and those around you, into a state of peace and harmony. That which is true, partially true, has the ability to create harm. And you can be totally convinced of a truth. And there's many examples in the great history of our human civilization of those individuals who believed that they spoke for ultimate truth when in fact they sat with partial truth and their partial truth created great harm in the world. I'll give you an example that's quite far from our contemporary era so it won't uh, be you know, too, um, too personal. And if it is personal, I'm sorry. Uh, if we can think about the Crusades that happened a while ago, so we shouldn't really, you know, hopefully we haven't been crusaded in this lifetime. So when we think about the Crusades, there were, there were individuals who believed that they were fighting God's war and they were out there killing people who in the name of God, you know, and they're killing people. Oh, if you read the word of God, the do not kill, you know, except now that this individual, they think now I sit with ultimate truth. Therefore I can do this harm. And this is partial truth. Sure. This person may feel some connection in this way with partial truth. We can look back and see clearly, oh, this was a partial truth. Yes. They were enthusiastic about their relationship with you know, something eternal. And they were on some level, on some level, no matter how disjointed that level was, trying to do what they believed was good in the world. But clearly the impact was harm. You can see this in retrospect. The same on a microcosm with yourself. Oh, when I'm acting in this way, this is the most truth that I can uh, inhabit from in this sphere that I'm in right now. Evaluate the impacts. Evaluate the impacts. It's not only intention. We have to evaluate the impact. If the impact of our actions bears the seeds of himsa, harm in the world, it's highly likely we're operating from partial truth. And unfortunately, we are very often, most often operating from partial truth. And those times when we operate from, from uh, transcendent truth are those times that have generated the most healing in our lives that seemed miraculous, that seemed, you know, as though, as though some force greater and bigger than us was acting uh, in our favor and in the favor of those around. So take a look out for, uh, uh, for, for the impacts of your actions, number one. And then uh, number two, keep practicing. Yoga will lead you deeper and deeper along the path. All right. And then number three, be humble. Constantly remember humility. Because without humility, we can, we can claim the mantle of ultimate truth when in fact, we are not the Buddha. So humility is essentially saying, oh, I am not the Buddha. So not yet anyway, maybe a few thousand more lifetimes for me then maybe I'm there. Who knows? Maybe 10,000, 1,000, 100,000. Who knows? Maybe just as long as you don't go back to being a rock on the way to being a Buddha. So then uh, if we think about that, we can realize, oh, humility. Mm. I had to not see the ultimate truth. Therefore, 
I am, you know, not going to take too drastic action right now. And I think the humility aspects uh, or even, even sharing from a place of humility is extremely important. Okay, so the next question, let's see, is uh, from Ruth. Hi, Ruth. Ruth is asking uh, a, a nice, fun question. So Ruth says, Kino, do you drink coffee? What do you think about caffeine? I think I drink too much of it, but I like it. Okay, Ruth, if you like coffee, coffee is not against the laws of yoga. You know, coffee has been said to be a source of prana for some people. There was even my teacher who once said, no coffee, no prana, or no coffee, no ashtanga. Because in ashtanga, sometimes we have to practice very early in the morning. Little caffeine helps you wake up. Too much caffeine and it can disturb the biological processes of the body. Every individual needs to find their own balance and relationship with caffeine. Personally, I don't drink coffee. I don't have any moral reason not to drink coffee. I don't like the taste of it. I never liked the taste of coffee. My whole life, I never liked the taste of it. When I was like a senior in high school, I went through this period where I thought I needed to drink coffee to try to be grown up. And then I, like, I don't know, a couple of months went by and I looked at this black stuff and I, this is disgusting. And I thought, I'm not drinking this. <laughs> please I take anything other any other liquid besides this orange juice big I'm a big fan of orange juice I'm a big fan of coconut water and I like tea I really like tea I like chai I like uh, green tea I like lots of herbal teas actually I really love herbal tea uh, so I don't I'm not like against caffeine I don't like the taste of coffee so like this you love coffee like you love anything try to find as any food substance or any activity try to find the most balanced way that this supports your practice, your body, and your life. Every human body is a little different, like, um, like a musical instrument. The foods that you put into your body impact the level of attunement that this physical structure has. So you can imbalance things, just like you can tighten a guitar string too tightly, or, and then it's out of tune, or things can be too loose, and then they're also out of tune. So you need to find your own alignment and the food that you eat, as well as the thoughts that you think, as well as the emotions that you feel, as well as the environment that's around you impacts the level of attunement, which is within your body. So some people, they will feel very happy drinking lots of coffee. And then this is the body is that helps their body get in tune. Wonderful. You have to find out if you're that person. Other people, they drink too much coffee and then it stresses the adrenal glands and stresses the kidneys and these sorts of things. And then they, then they doesn't work for them. So you have to figure that out. I don't really want to tell you specifically what you should do. So I want you to find that out, go on that process of investigation to find the perfect attunement for your physical being. Now, as a general rule, this is generally, and I think almost all physical human bodies on this planet need water right? This is just the biological fact. You figure out how much water you need. But I generally find there are few of us humans who drink the appropriate amount of water to keep our physical bodies in tune. I don't know what it is. We don't like to drink water. I don't know. We're, it, it, there's few people who do. So if you are someone who loves coffee, I can recommend you to explore increasing your water consumption from the pure fact that if you're practicing yoga and drinking coffee, these are two things which are removing liquids from you. And coffee is not hydrating and neither is tea or anything else with caffeine, you know? So just be conscious of the balance between caffeination and um, water, pure water, H2O that comes into the body as that can impact the uh, sort of level of attunement that your physical structure will be able to achieve. But please don't think that coffee is banned from the spiritual path. And please don't think that, you know, 
you're a bad yogi because you drink coffee. You're not a bad yogi because you drink coffee. You can do yoga and drink coffee. I just recommend at least not at the same time. So try to drink your coffee before or after your yoga practice, not during yoga. Okay. And I, and, and the same people will always, will sometimes ask me and that, you know, if they hear about coffee and usually the next question is something along the lines of, Kino, do you drink alcohol? Like, do you, can we have wine? Can we do wine? What about beer or other fun drinks like margaritas? Can we have margaritas? Is that okay? I like margaritas, you know? So I'll give you the same answer. I never in my life really enjoyed alcohol. I don't like the taste of it. I don't like how it feels. I I feel dumb when I, you know, have a few drinks. It's like a numbing thing. And I, even when I was ingesting uh, large amounts of illegal substances on an effort to attain um, uh, wonderful states of partying, alcohol was never high on the list of my uh, chosen substances. I I definitely like my mind to be a bit more clear. So I never liked alcohol. I didn't like the taste of it. And I had the same thing in high school where I was like, let's drink because we're in high school and that's what you do when you're an adult is drink things. So then uh, I did that for a little bit and achieved the said result of, of alcohol consumption, you know, which is you become inebriated on some form or another. And at some moment I realized I don't like this either. I don't like the taste. I don't like the effect. I don't like the after effect. I'm not doing this anymore. So I don't do it. And that being said, are you a bad yogi if you enjoy a glass of wine? Oh, absolutely not. Are you a bad yogi? Is it banned if you need to have margaritas? Oh, no, no. Again, you are responsible for the level of physical attunement within your body. Some people, uh, like for example, my husband, he's from Denmark and was raised uh, drinking beer and lunch from a very young age. You know, this is something very uh, foreign and exotic to me, the idea that someone would take a beer for the lunch. Uh, I think beer is disgusting. I never, is just, it's like top of the disgusting list of all the alcohols. I think vodka maybe is better, but um, you know, so, so we have to think about, oh, culturally, this is something that this body, this physical, physical system has been acclimated towards from a very young age. So it works. Okay. For me, this not work. This would not work. Give me a beer at lunch and I'm done for the day. This would be finished for me for maybe three days. It's over for me. So then we have to think about, again, not these big blanket rules. You know, now you have this, you're not the real yogi. Now you have this, you are real yogi because you do this. Your physical body is unique. You must find that attunement, which is right for you. And it's not only food, coffee, beer, wine, you know, fruits, vegetables. It's also air that you breathe. It's also sunlight. It's also the atmosphere. What is in the atmosphere? It's the energy around you, the thoughts that people are near you are thinking, the thoughts of your community, the thoughts you are thinking inside your mind, the emotions you're feeling. And I will tell you, I truly believe that there are some of us who are very, very sensitive to food stuffs. You know, you eat this food and then three days we're suffering. And there's some of us who are not so sensitive. They can eat anything and they like have this, this deal stomach, you know, they drink like, you know, tap water in some country they've never been to. And they're like, Oh, I'm fine. And there are others. They, you know, have a little fleck of dust that landed on their salad in three days. They're hunched over. So some people are very sensitive to foodstuffs. Other people are very sensitive to atmospheric conditions, whether that's uh, the environment. I, for one, am very sensitive to sunshine. When the sun is shining, I'm happy. I can be very, you know, it can be even cold. The sun is out. I'm wow. I'm happier. So I'm sensitive to that. Other people, they're not so sensitive. It's uh, raining. They like the rain. 
good for them. Maybe they're like plants, you know, oh, raining. I'm like a plant. I go outside. And they, you know, my, my parents always used to say that to me when, it, when I was a child and said, mom, I don't like it. It's raining. And then my dad would say, sweetheart, it's good for the plants. And then I'm sure you know what the appropriate answer to that is. I'm not a plant. <laughs> so I don't know the people who like rain, maybe they're connected to the plant kingdom oh, and then are happy with the rain. Personally, I don't like it, but um, I accept it's good for the plants and we need rain and all that sort of stuff. So that's an example of atmospheric conditions. Some people are very sensitive to the thoughts that other people think when you walk into a room and there's like a lot of angry people in the room, then immediately you feel it. Then you're sensitive to the atmospheric condition of thought and emotion of those around you. And I don't know about you, but I think that it's very possible that we're more sensitive to one or the other. So that some people are very sensitive to food stuff. They need to really be diligent and very disciplined about that or their body becomes out of alignment. Other people maybe not so sensitive to food, but so sensitive to thought and emotion must be very diligent and conscious about what they surround themselves with and be conscious consumers of thought, energy, and emotion around. Other people, they eat whatever. You can say whatever to them. doesn't matter as long as the sun is shining. The sun is shining. Say whatever you want. Feed me whatever you want. Everything is good. So you just figure out. Other people are so sensitive. They need everything to work. You need the right food. has to be the right atmospheric conditions. We must watch and care for thoughts and emotions. And then that person, maybe they really look from the outside. Oh, this person is so disciplined. Such a super yogi. But you don't know that from the outside looking in, oh, hey, this person, if they don't take care of all of this, then they feel really bad. And so in that way, we can't judge one another. Just we can find our own path. Okay? Sorry, this long answer to I drink coffee. My husband drinks coffee. He likes coffee. Again, I have no moral objection to coffee. I even go and like search out nice coffee when I'm traveling in, in or from somewhere or we're somewhere and they have some local coffee roaster. I buy him coffee. Again, I don't have any problem with other people drinking coffee. Don't take it away from this. Okina says you should not drink coffee. Just don't make me drink coffee. That's all I'm saying. Don't be, you know, you must drink this coffee. No, no, no. I've had that a couple of times. Please take coffee. Try to force feed me coffee. Then I didn't, I, I took it. I, I didn't sleep for like three days. So, you know, I'm sensitive to it. Okay. Let's see another, so there are some other questions. So, okay. Let's see. There are some practical questions about the yoga practice. So I think I saw up above. Let me just go up and see. I think that I saw... Maya, who said, I have a slightly overstretched hamstring. How would you modify? I can still do the poses, but don't know how far to stretch. Now, I think there was another question that was similar. So if we can put those two kind of together. And Elizabeth also has a question, how to rectify the sitting bone hamstring problems in practice and exercises outside of class. Um, and then she's a second part of the question, which is, uh, how can I, or how, how can you work on, or what are the best muscles and asanas to work on levity? And I think you mean lightness or how to lift up. Uh, okay. So let's take a look at that first. Generally first, generally let's talk about injury in the yoga practice. Okay. Injury in the yoga practice is something that. I really would say a prayer that if it was possible, that if everyone could never be injured, I would say that prayer and, oh, let us all never be injured. But I really believe like that that's essentially like praying, may my heart never be broken, you know? But you know that like on some level, our broken heartedness is what makes depth 
in our lives and what makes us human. You know, when our hearts break a little here or there, it's like, that's what they say, that that's where the cracks, where the light can shine through. So it's our woundedness that brings us together. So when we learn how to work with injury in our yoga practice, we're learning how to work with our woundedness and our brokenheartedness in our life. And it's a really important lesson. So first of all, even though it would be nice if we were to never be injured, that injury, when it arises, will teach you something. And that what it will, what it will teach you is something bigger than just how to heal the body, but also how to sit with pain. And sitting with pain is itself a teaching because so often we run from pain. So how do we sit with that pain and open up a doorway to healing in our yoga practice? Well, the first thing to understand is that when there's an injury, when there's an injury, then this is a sign from the body that we were out of alignment in some way, that we were, okay, this injury has come up and this could be numerous things. It could be that we were just working too hard. We're stressing the joints. It could be an emotional. I find that oftentimes uh, injuries are sometimes come up when we're, when we're emotionally challenged, you know, if you're and, and parentheses and a parentheses about that, if you're going through a stressful emotional period in your life, try to make your practice be just a safe space where you don't need to push. And the practice doesn't need to be, you know, a, a, a hard space. So think about the idea that if you're going through a, a difficult emotional period in your life, try to make practice more simplified. And, and I think this, this can really help you feel more grounded so that maybe you don't push as hard, maybe you do the asanas more easy, you take it easy, and that can really help. Now, if for whatever reason, whether you got injured in your yoga practice or in life, you know, we were here, the situation has occurred, now there's a learning that can happen. So let's take the example of the hamstring attachment injury. Unfortunately, this is a really common thing to have happen in the yoga practice, where we overstretch the hamstring at the sitting bone attachment. And when this happens, number one, we have to look at how can I modify all the asanas so that I don't re-injure? So the first thing to do is don't try to stretch out that area. So you just have to recognize this is hurt. Sometimes when things are hurt, you have to leave them alone. So you need to do things like bend your knee. Then if it's really acute, you might want to even ice it before and after practice just to, give, just to bring the inflammation down. You might want to seek the help of a physical therapist or an acupuncturist, just particularly in the acute stage, someone that can really help you address the injury from that holistic perspective. Then number two, during the healing phase, now you have to consciously retrain how you move. Now you have to find a way to move and be in your body that honors the injury, which will have scar tissue and woundedness and a memory of the trauma. You need to craft a new way of moving and being that will simultaneously honor where you've been and craft a path to a new way forward. The biggest impediment in that is the memory of the past. If in an injury, you're trying to get back to where you were, you'll always be holding yourself up to some standard of impossibility. So rather than trying to get back to where we were, when you're working with healing and injury, think about the, the, the paradigm of integration. How can I integrate my past scars, scar tissue, literal scar tissue, where an injury has happened? How can I integrate my past harms and hurts, hurts that I've done consciously or unconsciously to myself, hurts that have been done to me consciously or unconsciously by others or by the environment. You know, we trip and fall. Sometimes it's harmful. How can I integrate that while crafting a way forward with the understanding that the way forward might not look like the past? And this is what we do with injury. And this is in way, the ways that we retrain how we move. So an example of, again, when the injury is acute, you want to bend your knee. 
to make sure that there's no, uh, there's no re-injury and no restraint. On a purely physiological level, from the point of when that muscle has been injured, it takes, usually if it's an attachment, it'll take about three months to heal. And then, and then after those three months, that, that really acute phase will be over. And then we can move into retraining during the retraining phase, particularly for the hamstring attachment question. When we're in a forward bend, you want to do, um, you want to create what's called, um, uh, I think an isometric stretch where you root your sitting bone and your heel into the ground and kind of engage the hamstring while you're stretching it. And this will create kind of a limit to how much forward bending you're going to do but it will protect the hamstring for a period of time. During that retraining phase, which may last a month to three months to six months or even a year, it's really important that you do not re-aggravate the scar tissue. During that phase, once the acuteness has, has, has gone down and we're into retraining, I think at that point, we can even look at doing some therapeutic exercises like foam rolling, like using the foam roller and rolling out the area to smooth out the scar tissue. But it's important that you really wait until the acute phase of the injury has been healed. You can take that methodology and apply that to any injury, but of course, the specific action points around the sitting bones and the hamstrings would change. For example, if you have a shoulder issue or you have a spine issue or a neck issue or something like that, then this, uh, this changes. Okay. Okay. Let's see what other, what other questions are there. I see that there are many questions up in the chat. I'm sorry. Let me apologize right away if I don't answer everyone's questions. So let's see. Um, Sophia has a question. How long do you recommend the final relaxation to be after half primary primary? Good question. Minimum five minutes. I think minimum five minutes, maximum 20 minutes. Now, who? I mean, if you have 20 minutes to lie down, lucky you. Wonderful. You know, take your 20 minutes, have a little nap, go for a nap, put yourself under a blanket, turn a little heater on, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. The longer you stay, is good up until about 20 minutes. Beyond 20 minutes, you're lying there too long. Then you get cold and you're starving. You know, you have to get up after that. So I think five minutes is a minimum. And that's important because you want to, if you're doing your self-practice, a lot of times people will um, finish practice and immediately they're gone. You know, they finish practice and they're like, practice over. Okay. Uh, I got to make breakfast. I got to do this. I got to pack my kids lunch and I got to do the laundry. And then, you know, the air conditioning repair person is coming later. Oh goodness. Okay. So then like we're down and our mind is already and then we, we can't take it. We just get up. We start doing things, you know? So I really, those five minutes, if you cannot relax, you cannot relax, treat those five minutes like a meditation and keep your attention on your breath. If you really, really cannot relax, like you're really like, you're just one of these people that's like, I hate to lie here, you know, then play some relaxing music, particularly if you are familiar with this type of music that can bring your brain into a relaxed state, then you can put on um, the music that's the delta frequency or the theta frequency and, and, and put that on during the final relaxation and put it for five minutes and try to just be there relaxing for five minutes, minimum five minutes. It's very important after intensive asana practice to lie flat because your bones settle. And, there, and, and on the settling of your bones, any misalignments that may have happened during your practice will lessen a little bit. You'll come back into alignments. We need those five minutes and lie flat during those five minutes. Number two, you're integrating mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything that you've worked during the practice. And that's extremely important because if you just pop up and you go right back into, I got to do this, I got to do that. got to make this email. I got to do this phone call. 
Or if during your practice, you start making phone calls and answering emails and said, no, no, no. Then we start to disturb what the spiritual path is about. Okay. Okay. Let's see what other questions are in the chat. Okay. Melody. Hi, Melody. Melody is asking, for those of us unable to practice full primary series, how do we get better at the seated poses? Is there a way to study them or can we practice just the sitting series instead of the standing series? Good question, Melody. So uh, if you're unable to do the full primary series, like you just don't have time every day, you know, or uh, some days, maybe on the weekend, you're, oh, I have three hours to devote to yoga. But then Monday comes and we have work, kids, family, life, dogs got to get walked, cats got to get fed, all of, you know, things, what do they say? Um, places to go, people to see, things to do, right? If that's Monday through Friday, then Monday through Friday, yoga, we got 20 minutes. What can we do? Then sun salutation should always be there if it's Ashtanga. Some standing poses should always be there. Then you can, you can cut primary series up a little bit. So you, you can even cut it into thirds or fourths. So you can do this section, this section, this section, this section. That's best worked on with your teacher. This is why it's important to have a teacher so you don't just, you don't just think, what should I do today? So if you have limited time, but you want to progress through the series, you can chop up the series so that you can somehow connect them all throughout the day. All right. Or throughout the week. And then, and then over time, yoga works magic in your life because at first you're like, I don't have time. I only have 20 minutes. It's all I've got. After a couple months of practice, suddenly you have 40 minutes every day, right? Then more months of practice, then the positive impact in your life, then life starts mirroring back to you the positive impacts of the practice. Suddenly you have one hour every day. Suddenly your family members are like, mom, go do yoga. You're so nice when you do yoga. Today you have not practiced. Are you going to practice later? You know? And so then your family starts supporting you doing yoga, you know? And when that happens, oh, wonderful. Great. Suddenly you have an hour and a half every day to practice. It just fits in. Now the life has changed. You have changed. And then the life has changed to mirror that change within you. And this is somehow over years of practice, then the life situation starts to better be. Uh, conducive to more longer commitment to, you know, the practice journey. Okay. Let's see how we're doing. Maybe we have time for a few more questions. So let me go back. Okay. So let's see. There are some more practical questions about um, how can we protect our shoulders? How can we finally lift up in some of the difficult lift ups in the practice? How can we, you know, actually attain some of the yoga postures? So I want to answer these generally rather than specifically so that we understand when I'm working on my yoga practice, you cannot snap your fingers and do a yoga pose. You know, some people they're born, they can just do that posture. Good for them. Most of us, we have to practice. So then we have to practice with intelligence and with feeling and understand that the goal is not the pose, but is the experience that, that we gain on that journey of the pose. So if your shoulders feel sensitive in, say, Chaturanga Dandasana or the push-up position, then we want to move slowly and find a version where we're able to tune in to the muscles and the joints that can support that motion. The same thing with Lolasana or any other posture that we find challenging. We want to find a way to work. All right? Now... In just practicing the primary series itself, if you really commit to that and you do your work during the practice, years of practice will lead you to the results. But if you're impatient and you want to be more conscious about it, then you can 
do, you can workshop the posture and you can do that with the assistance of a teacher, with the assistance of online videos or books that offer you a pathway to workshop and dissect and divide what muscles are activated and you use your inquisitive mind and then you apply the answers that you get on your seeking to your own body. Okay. So number one, keep practicing. It does get better, but it's a long journey. Give yourself 10 years, then reevaluate. All right. Number two, workshop, analyze, divide and dissect and figure out what, what unique thing that can I work on today that will help me out in the long journey. Okay. Let's go for, uh, maybe one more question for today. So Carolina, hi, Carolina, uh, has asked this question, how to handle emotions when we practice, uh, the intermediate series, when there are moments of sadness, does it seem to make them more sensitive? How to channel this for my benefit? Really good question. So oftentimes emotions arise during practice, whether you're doing the intermediate series of Ashtanga yoga, or you're doing primary series, you're just doing meditation, or you're doing a yin practice, or, you know, we're just existing. Emotions are there. You know, they arise. And just like any weather impact, they pass away. So we can think of the emotions as weather. You know, sometimes it's rainy, sometimes it's sunny. We all, based on what I've seen in the chat, seem to like better when it's sunny. So what do we do when it's raining? We cannot yell at the cloud. Cloud, nasty cloud, why are you here? I hate you. Go away, cloud. So this is the first thing to understand. When emotions arise, there's nothing wrong with the emotions. Like I said before, the, the plants need the rain. So there's some emotionality within us that similarly needs that catharsis of the emotion arising. If you contain that emotion within you and you don't let it out, then it's like the same feeling of the barometric pressure dropping when it doesn't rain. I don't know if uh, any of you have ever experienced that when the pressure is just dropping and dropping and dropping and it gets really muggy outside and you can feel it really needs to rain, but it's not raining. It's like constipated in the you know weather system. It's just, it won't rain and it feels horrible because the pressure is so intense. You yourself are like that weather system. If that emotion is within you, but it doesn't bubble out to the surface and it doesn't, there's not a release of some fashion, you're not understanding, oh, am I, I'm feeling that. Then uh, it'll, it will kind of clog ourselves up. So first of all, we recognize emotion is not bad. Even negative emotion. When anger is present, I must be aware of my anger. When sadness is present, I must be aware. Sadness is present. When this heightened state of anxiety is present, I must be aware. I must be aware, number one. Number two, what, do you, what is the practical thing to do during the practice? Whenever the strong emotion arises, we try to simultaneously recognize it while this is extremely important, cultivating two qualities of awareness. Number one, I am not this emotion. So it arises. I am not this. Sadness is present, which is different than I am so sad right now. Sadness is present. Sadness is present within this energy system. Sadness has arisen, number one, mm. which is I am not identifying with that. I recognize sadness is present without reacting to it. So you just observe. Then try to stay rooted in the reality of the physical accompaniment of that state. And this is something we don't often do. So we just, I'm so sad, I'm so sad, I'm so sad, we're not really feeling, you know? Or I'm feeling anger, 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 but we don't feel it. We just, ah. So recognize sadness is present. Then you can do this during your practice. Sadness is present. Close your eyes for a moment. Stop your practice. Stop doing asana for a moment. Stop, take child's pose. Close your eyes, take seated pose and feel. 
So you tune in and this increases your sense of embodiment. So you feel you recognize first level of awareness, recognize sadness is present and I am not my emotions. The sadness is present. This is not who I am. Number two, when this sadness is present, how does my body feel? So then you feel when sadness is present, it feels like a collapse. I feel like, you know, there's a weight on my shoulders. I feel a heaviness. I feel just whatever you feel, just feel really present with it. If there are tears and you're crying, feel the tears. I feel a tear moving down my cheek, touching my lips, salty when it hits my lips, moving down, moving down. So you stay very present to the physical tactile reality of that. And here's the liberation that comes from it. By simply observing, you're giving it permission to go. That's all you need to do. Those two things. And this will be very real for you when it comes up. Give yourself between five and 20 breaths in that state. Go back to your asana practice. Then this is training for real life. It's not over. It's not that now I'll never be sad again because I recognized I'm not my sadness and I felt tears going down my face when I was doing backbends. No, definitely you're going to be sad again. But now you've practiced. Now when sadness comes up or anger or anxiety or anything else, clinging, grasping, addiction of one type or another, then we practiced how we respond to it. So then sometimes we don't even know we're sad, but we're sad. We don't even know. We go around, we're super sad. We don't know. We go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to work. I'm getting things done. We don't even realize we're sad. Now, because you have been brave enough to recognize I am not my sadness and I recognize the physical accompaniments of my sadness. Okay. Then in the real life, here you are off of your yoga mat in real life. Then we're going around here, there, here, there. And suddenly you feel that heaviness that I felt after backbend. I feel it in my body. Weird. I feel this pressure. I feel this heaviness. The body's so heavy. I feel this burden. Gosh, I feel, I feel like I want to quit. Like, like my shoulders are giving out and you don't know you're sad yet, but you recognize the physical accompaniments then it's only one step, one other step to jump that line to realize, oh, sadness is present. There's something I'm sad about that I'm not aware of. Let me sit with that for a little bit. Let me sit with that for a little bit and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And in this way, we can, we can consciously, again, back to that conscious unconscious path, as long as an emotion is present and we're unconscious about it, it is an indirect driver of the course of our life. When the emotion is present and we become conscious of it, then we can be aware, oh, sadness is present. It can be there. Now I don't need to let that sadness choose how I'm going to live my life, but I recognize sadness is there. As long as it's unconscious, it will indirectly steer the course of your life with its raw power. As long as it's conscious, you're free of it, even though it's present. It's not that you'll never experience again, but the chain related to that emotionality is gone. So this is so wonderful. When, I, when emotions arise during your practice, celebrate them. Ah, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Strong, intense emotion came up for me. Great. I can practice now how to find stillness amidst that. I can practice how to not identify with that. Wonderful. Because you know this will make a positive impact off your mat in your everyday life. Okay. So this is true for whatever difficulties you experience, whether those difficulties are sadness, anxiety, or they're physical. So if you have headaches or other physical ailments that arise and pass, similarly, you'll recognize again, I am not my body. And then we observe the same thing. It's very difficult to break these attachments. I'm not my body. I'm not my mind. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my life. I'm not this. I'm not this. There's this practice that's also known as neti neti, not this, not this. So we kind of, we come back. 
over and over again. We come back, come back, come back. And this coming back, remember, as we started this talk, is a return to self. And that self, which is capital S, is the self of the seeing consciousness, the drashtu, the purusha, which is where we're orienting our whole journey of yoga. The closing prayer that we did at the end of practice is the Guru Stotram. We did one line of the Guru Stotram at the end of practice, if you're interested in that. There are many refrains of the Guru Stotram. That's a chant in honor of the lineage of teachers. We are here today because many teachers have come before us and uh, we give thanks to that lineage. So let's end the session. Also, we can do the Guru Stotram again since I've just talked about it. If we were in person, I would do the chant call and response, but we're not in person, so we just do it all together. Okay, hands in prayer. Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwaraha, Guru Sakshat Parabrahma. Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Agnana Timirandasya Nyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Super. So next week we have uh, David Swenson. So on a Saturday, so please come for David's class. Tim and I'll be practicing and hosting him. And then we'll be announcing dates for February real soon. Okay. And I will see you in practice somewhere online. And I just send you a lot of love. Have a really good day. Bye. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.